Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm a pastor here. It's my privilege to preach the Word of God for us today. Uh, We are currently in part 66 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, Today's sermon is titled, Don't Despair, But Persist in Prayer. Let me pray for us one more time before we jump in. God, we are your people. You are our God. So as you speak to us, give us ears to hear and understand, hearts to respond in faith and worship and persistence. Lord, help us as we, as we sit and submit ourselves to your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. During the height of the Vietnam War, Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest-ranking U.S. military officer in the prisoner of war camp, sadistically known as Hanoi Hilton. He was brutally tortured over 20 times from 1965 to 1973, which left him permanently limping for the rest of his life. And during his imprisonment, he and his fellow prisoners of war lived without any rights, no set release date, no certainty as to whether they were ever going to survive and see their families again. And yet, after his eight long years of imprisonment, Stockdale survived and was liberated, while many of his brothers-in-arms did not make it out alive. When asked how he survived, Stockdale said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. When he was asked who did not make it out, he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. And then he said what has become known as the Stockdale Paradox, which is about balancing optimism with realism. Quote, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Unquote. In today's passage, around 2,000 years before Stockdale said these words, we see this same idea at play. Jesus exhorts his disciples to confront the brutal fact that they will face injustice in the world, but he also calls them to never lose faith that he will prevail in the end as their Lord and Savior. And in that time of waiting, he calls them not to despair, but to persist in prayer. So the one thing for today is this, as you wait, do not despair, but in faith, persist in prayer. As you wait, do not despair, but in faith, persist in prayer. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. Uh, Just to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage, last week we saw that in light of a question that the Jewish religious teachers asked Jesus about the kingdom of God, Jesus affirmed that he is the king in the kingdom of God. And then he turned to his disciples and explained to them that in his first coming, he must suffer and die to bring about their salvation. 
But then in his second coming, at the end of the age, he will return in an obvious, sudden, severe way to bring about just judgment upon all people and to take his people home. And that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. It says this, And he, that's Jesus, told them, his disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in three parts. In verses 1 to 5, We'll first explain the parable of the unjust judge and persistent widow. And then from verse 6 to the first part of verse 8, in light of that parable, we'll look at two motivations for persistent prayer, which are that God is just and loving towards his elect, and that God will not delay in doing right. And in the second part of verse 8, we'll close with one challenging question about our faith that Jesus poses. So first, the parable of the unjust judge and persistent widow. Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What's interesting here is that Jesus tells them the point of the parable at the very beginning. He doesn't save the punchline until the end, but he's telling it to them up front, and he wants them to make the connections even as they listen to this parable. Verse 1 is basically the so what of this entire passage. It's the one application point that Jesus wants them to walk away with. Always pray and do not lose heart. That's the life application of this entire sermon. Or do not despair, but persist in prayer. To always pray does not mean that all we should do is pray. That would be impossible. We need to sleep, eat, do many other things that God has called us to do. Rather, to always pray simply means that we are to pray consistently and persistently, as we'll soon see in this parable. So why is Jesus bringing this up to begin with? We need to remember the context. Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem, where he knows he will suffer and die for the salvation of all who believe in him. Three days later, he will resurrect, and then 40 days later, he's going to ascend to heaven. So Jesus knows that he doesn't have much time left with his disciples before he's going to be gone. And remember, Jesus has just been talking about his second coming with his disciples, saying that the days are coming when they will desire to see him, but they won't be able to. And during that time of waiting and praying for Jesus' return, he knows that it's going to be very difficult for his disciples. He knows that they're going to struggle and that they're they're going to be tempted to lose heart, to despair, to give up. Or as Stockdale put it, Jesus knows his disciples will be prone towards dying of a broken heart. 
In the midst of suffering and trials and persecution, his disciples will wait and wait and wait, pray and pray and pray, and it will seem like God has failed them. It will seem like Jesus is not coming back to right all wrongs and restore all things, and they're going to be prone to lose heart, to give up. And so in order to prepare them for the time of waiting in between his first and second coming, Jesus tells them this parable. Look at verses 2 to 3. Jesus introduces two characters in the parable on opposite spectrums of power in society. First, in verse 2, he introduces a judge, which means that he was in a position of power. But this judge neither feared God nor respected man, which is literally the opposite of what you should expect from a good judge. In essence, this judge doesn't care about God or people or justice. As we'll see later, all he cares about is himself. Second, in verse 3, Jesus introduces a widow who is seeking justice against her adversary. We don't know the details of her case, but from Jesus' telling of the parable, it seems that she is experiencing some injustice from someone and that she is in the right. But it's very odd that she's personally appealing to this judge at all. Because in the first century patriarchal society, it should have been her husband or her son or some other male counterpart going before the judge on her behalf. But she's a widow, so she has no husband. And it's probably safe to say that she has no son to represent her either. And with few openings for a woman to earn a living in the first century, she was probably poor as well. In fact, in Scripture, we often see widows being categorized with orphans, immigrants, and the poor. They were among the marginalized and most vulnerable in society. And thus, they were often the victims of injustice. You know, even the religious leaders of the day who supposedly feared God were accused by Jesus of devouring widows' houses. If those were the religious teachers, what should we expect from this judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't respect people. It doesn't look very good for her. This widow has no status in society, no representative to plead her case, no money to live on. She has nothing to win over this unjust judge who cares nothing for her or God or justice. All she can do is just keep coming to the judge over and over again to plead for justice. Anyone listening to this parable would have recognized that this is a terrible situation for the widow. Just look at the character of this unjust judge. And just look at the plight of this unfortunate widow. It seems hopeless. There's no way that she's going to get justice. But then, look at verses 4 to 5. This is the surprise in the parable. Somehow, the persistent widow eventually receives justice from the unjust judge. For a while, we don't know how long this while is, but for a while, the judge refuses her justice. But then he begins to reason with himself. He acknowledges that he neither fears God nor respects people, but then he also acknowledges that he's so annoyed and bothered by the widow's persistence. To beat me down literally means to blacken my eye. But of course, he means it figuratively, to wear me out by continual annoying. So the unjust judge finally decides to give her justice, not because he cares about her or God or justice, but simply so that she will not exasperate him with her persistent pleas. 
he's worn down, he's beaten down, and he doesn't want to be bothered anymore. So that's what's going on in the parable. But what does any of this have to do with Jesus' disciples and the exhortation to always pray and not lose heart? Is Jesus saying that his disciples are to badger God or beat down God in prayer until they get the justice that God doesn't want to give them to begin with? Absolutely not. Not at all. Please do not walk away with that understanding of this passage. It's, the meaning of this passage is actually quite the opposite. How do we know? Because of what Jesus says next. So let's turn now to look at two motivations for persistent prayer. You know, just like his early disciples, Jesus knows that all of us are also going to struggle in this time between his first and second coming. He knows that as we wait and pray, we're all going to be tempted to lose heart and despair and give up. So these words of encouragement are not just for Jesus' early disciples, but also for all of us who share in the same struggle as we claim to be his disciples as well. So what are the two motivations for persistent prayer? First, God is just and loving towards his elect. Look at verse 6 to the first part of verse 7. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Notice first the assumption that Jesus makes in verse 7. He assumes that his disciples will experience injustice to the point where they will cry out to God day and night. That is, they will pray persistently and consistently, asking him to give them justice. They're going to experience unjust treatment. This could be the unjust suffering and persecution they experience for their faith in Christ. This could be unjust systemic treatment from society because of ethnicity, nationality, or socioeconomic class. This could be the unjust treatment from a boss, a parent, a spouse, a friend, or someone else. Unfortunately, we live in a broken and sinful world where all of us, no matter who we are, will experience injustices in our lives. It's inevitable. But notice what Jesus' disciples are not doing. They are not taking justice into their own hands in a vengeful way. They are not responding aggressively, passive-aggressively, or even apathetically. Rather, they are crying out to God in prayer day and night, trusting that he is the one who will ultimately give them justice. Now, what does it mean to ask God for justice? The Bible talks about justice in two ways. First, there is retributive justice or rectifying justice, which is what we probably normally think of when we think about justice. This is punishing wrongdoers, reestablishing rights, caring for victims of unjust treatment. Second, there is distributive justice or primary justice, which is making sure that goods and opportunities are more equitably distributed in society. This is when a person in his day-to-day living conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity, doing right. If everyone were living out distributive justice, that is, acting with fairness, generosity, and equity, then there would be no need for retributive justice, that is, punishing wrongdoers, reestablishing rights, caring for victims of unjust treatment. But because we live in a broken, sinful world, we need both retributive and distributive justice for the time being. But that will not always be so. We may not realize this, but whenever we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are essentially asking God for both aspects of his justice. 
we're asking that he bring perfect retributive justice in our world. For anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, Jesus himself has borne all the retributive justice, all the just punishment that we deserve for our sins he bore on our behalf. And as Christians, we're asking God to lead more people to put their faith in Christ so that they may be justly forgiven in him. But if anyone hardens themselves in rebellion and opposition against King Jesus, as Psalm 2 describes, we're asking God to carry out his perfect retributive justice upon them. You know, this may sound unkind or unloving, but we must recognize that such people are bringing harm against others. Of course, our greatest longing is that they would repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that Christ bears their just punishment and that their lives are completely transformed. But if not, we ask that God himself will prevent them from doing greater harm to his people. Still, not only retributive justice, but we're also asking God to empower us to live out distributive justice, to live in a way that matches and showcases the character and purposes of our King, Jesus Christ. That may even be to express distributive justice to the very ones who are treating us unjustly, to be kind, generous, equitable to the very people who are not showing us those things. In either case, we trust that God alone is the one who is perfectly just, so we don't trust ourselves or other people to ultimately give us the justice that we desire, but we wholly depend on him, our God, to give us the justice that we know we truly need. So that's what it means to ask God for justice. Now, as we look at verse 6 and 7 together, we see that Jesus is making a how much more argument. If this unrighteous judge will give justice to this unknown widow, how much more will our righteous God give justice to his elect? And that's the key for understanding this parable rightly. We have to understand that this parable cannot be read in a one-to-one way. But like the parable of the dishonest manager that we looked at about a month ago, this parable is almost entirely a parable of contrast. That is, God is not like this unjust judge. And Jesus' disciples are not like the unknown widow. The how much more argument only makes sense when we recognize the contrast. Even in the parable itself, the judge is contrasted with God because this judge does not fear God. The assumption is that if he did fear God, then he would respect people, especially the marginalized and vulnerable, and he would act justly. Why would we expect that? Because that's what a person who fears God does, because that's what God does. You know, whenever we have a guest preacher come to our church, we usually ask them how they would like to be introduced. And they usually send us a short bio that we can use to introduce them. Now, if someone were to ask me how I would want to be introduced as a guest preacher, I'd probably propose something like this. This is Eric Yee, husband to Tina, father to Caleb and Micah, and a pastor at HMCC of Jakarta. Of course, there's more to me than just that, uh, but those are some of the main things that I spend most of my time doing. I'm a husband, a father, a pastor. Now, in light of that, Think about how significant it is then that the biblical writers introduce God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Or stated more descriptively in Psalm 146, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. 
The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Why does scripture introduce God that way? Because those are some of the main things that God does in this world. He wants us to know that he identifies with the marginalized, the vulnerable, the weak, and he takes up their cause to give them justice. That's what our God does. And so we can trust that the judge of all the earth will surely do what is right, what is just. That's who he is. So God is not like the unrighteous judge. But Jesus' disciples are also not like the unknown widow. Here, Jesus calls his disciples the elect. That is, God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world to be his own. They belong to God. They're his. Whereas the widow was a nobody to this judge. If we are united to Christ through faith, then we are not nobodies in God's eyes. Our names are written in the book of life. Our names are engraved on the palm of his hands. His eyes saw our unformed substance. He formed our inward parts and knitted us together in our mother's womb. He knew us and he chose us to be his own, even before we ever came into being. That's what it means to be God's elect. And if we are united to Christ through faith, then that's what our relationship with God, with our God is like. He loves us as our Heavenly Father, and we love Him as His beloved children. Still, perhaps some of us here struggle with a widow mentality, or what's commonly called an orphan mentality, where you feel alone, that you have to fend for yourself. Nobody else is going to help you. You're anxious over many things like relationships, money, and health, because it's all up to you to secure those things. You live with a sense of unlimited expectations to fix things, to please others, to see yourself in a certain way, because it's all up to you. If you can relate to this kind of widow mentality, then perhaps prayer is a last resort or confined to a quiet time, but it's not going to be a vital part of your life, because at the end of the day, you really believe that you're on your own. You're a widow. You're an orphan. You're by yourself. If that's you, then you need to know that in Christ, you are not like the widow. But God is with you until the end of the age. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your heavenly Father who knows and graciously provides for you what you need. He does not expect you to carry the burden of all things wrong around you in other people's lives or even in your own life. But he alone is the sovereign Lord who makes all things work together for your good. Now, if you're a Christian, it's unlikely that I've said anything new. You probably know that. You've probably heard that hundreds of times. But there's a difference between agreeing with those truths and truly believing and living in light of them. There's so much assurance to be found in your election. There's so much rest to be found in your justification. There's so much joy to be found in your adoption. And yet, for many of us, we often write them off as just Christian platitudes. I've heard that before. It's no big deal. We no longer press these truths deeply into our hearts. We fail to see how glorious these truths are meant to be for us. 
Christianity is not merely about doctrines to believe, but these truths that we believe are meant to drive us to Christ, to treasure him, to love him, to find our all in him, to be secure, to be rest in him. There's so much that we forfeit by just dismissing these things that we think we've heard before. We no longer allow our hearts to soak them in. Rather, our hearts get hardened so they just bounce off of us. No matter what your formal doctrine is, are you living more like a deprived widow or more like a beloved and chosen child of your heavenly father? I think one of the ways that we'll know that is how we pray. If we pray, if we persist in prayer, Now, even as we note these contrasts, we should also note that there is one thing that we should imitate in this parable, and that's the persistence of the widow. Jesus' disciples are to cry to God day and night, which is just another way of saying what Jesus said in verse 1. That is, we are always to pray and not lose heart. We are to pray consistently and persistently, just like the widow did. But even for that, it's not exactly one-to-one. There's still a contrast. Because what motivates a disciple's persistence is radically different than what motivated the widow's persistence. In the parable, the widow persists because she knows that this judge is unrighteous and doesn't care about her. So the only way that he's going to listen to her and give her justice is if she exasperates him, wears him down, beats him down with persistent pleas. But as Jesus' disciples... That is not our situation at all. We persist in prayer because we know that our God is a just God who cares for us so much as his chosen and beloved children. Not only is he willing to listen to us, but he invites us to cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. In other words, we persist in prayer not because God doesn't listen and we need to exasperate him, beat him down, No, we persist in prayer because he does listen, and we trust that he is just and loving towards us. We come to God just as a beloved child freely and persistently comes to his father. Who else would a child turn to for help but their just and loving father? The fact that God is just and loving towards his elect ought to make a world of difference in our motivation for persisting in prayer. We're not widows. We're beloved children with a loving father. Now, the second motivation is that God will not delay in doing right. The second part of verse 7 to the beginning of verse 8 says this. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. You know, we're often prone to despair when we feel like the wait is too long or that justice is too delayed. At least that's the way that we feel. But here, Jesus challenges our perspective of time. From our perspective, especially if we're experiencing injustice, we feel like it's a long delay. And this is not unique to just us, but all the saints throughout history have felt this tension in this in-between time. That's why throughout the Psalms, we see God's people repeatedly asking God in prayer, How long, O Lord? Just flip through the Psalms, and you'll see it over and over again. They're crying out, how long, O Lord? But from God's perspective, he does not delay in doing right. 
we understand this from multiple standpoints. From the standpoint of eternity, God does not delay. You know, when we're younger, time seems to move much slower. Every year feels like a decade, and we can't wait to grow up. But as we get older, time seems to speed up, and suddenly a decade feels like a year. And we're wondering where all the time went. You know, I still cannot believe that I've been here for over a decade. It feels like it just flew by. And as for many of us, just look at the past decade, and many of us will feel like, I don't know where the time went. My 20s, just like that, it's gone. Of course, time didn't slow down or speed up, but we feel the days in proportion to the span of our lives. When you're only four years old, one year is a quarter of your life. So every year seems to move slowly, and everything feels much longer. But when you're 40 years old, a year is just one fortieth of your life. So every year seems to fly by without feeling like much time has passed by at all. But what would it be like to adopt the perspective of not a four-year-old or a 40-year-old, but as someone who knows that they have eternal life in Christ? What is a year, a decade, a century, or a millennium in light of the span of our eternal lives that we trust we have? This is the perspective that God has, and this is the perspective he wants us to adopt. For with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Also, from the standpoint of redemptive history, God is always on time. Scripture says in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He was just on time. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly says, my time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come. And then on the night that Jesus was to be arrested, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And then he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. God is always on time. He knows what he's doing. In light of redemptive history, God has been sovereignly orchestrating everything according to his appointed time and perfect will. Also from the standpoint of our sanctification, that is God conforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ, he is always on time. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's the will of God for your life? Your sanctification. I think we sometimes feel that God is delayed because our will for our own lives is often not our sanctification. Rather, it's for our comfort. But if we know that sanctification is God's aim, then we know that we must be refined in the fire. The process of sanctification is like the process of refining silver or gold. Simon Gillibo, author of the book Sacrifice, recalls a story of a woman who went to observe a silversmith at work, and he writes this. <clears throat> Quote, She observed him at work for a while and then asked him, Do you have to sit there the whole time the refining process is taking place? Yes, he said. It's important. If the temperature rises by even the slightest degree, the silver will be damaged. 
The woman was comforted by the thought that similarly, the Lord was watching over her. And however difficult her current circumstances were, he was in control. He wouldn't let the refining process go on a minute longer than was required because his purposes were good and he didn't want her to be damaged. After a while, the woman got up to leave, but as she was halfway out the door, the silversmith called her back and told her he had forgotten one detail. He only knew that the refining process was complete when he could see his own image reflected in the silver, unquote. Our suffering as Christians is not a sign of God's delay, but it's a sign of God's sanctifying process. He's not going to allow it to go a minute longer. He knows what he's doing. He is the master silversmith who is carefully putting us through the furnace to burn off all of our impurities, and he's carefully watching us throughout the entire process that it might not be too much for us. And one day, his purifying work will be complete in us, and we will be fully conformed to the image of his son. He knows what he's doing. He's always on time. Also, from the standpoint of salvation of the lost, God does not delay, but he exercises patience. 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow, but he is patient and compassionate towards the lost. He's not bringing final judgment right now because he's graciously giving all peoples time to hear the gospel, repent of their sins, and believe in Christ for salvation. In this time between Jesus' first and second coming, 2 Corinthians 6 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. This time between Jesus' comings is the day of salvation. If we adopt a perspective that only has regard for ourselves, we will see God as slow and delayed. But if we adopt a perspective that has regard for the salvation of the lost, then we will see God as patient and compassionate. When we're able to adopt a proper perspective, that is God's perspective, it helps us not to despair, but to persist in prayer. But we live in an age where expediency and immediacy are the standard of what works. If it isn't fast, then something isn't working right. And it's very easy to apply that same unbiblical standard to prayer. Perhaps as an asylum seeker or refugee, you've been praying and waiting for a call to tell you that your status has changed and that you're finally being resettled to a new country. Perhaps as a student, you've been praying and waiting for a good friend to come along or for a community where you feel like you truly belong. Perhaps as a single, you've been praying and waiting for a potential godly spouse to follow Christ with you for the rest of your life. Or for all of us, perhaps we've been praying and waiting for our loved ones to finally turn away from their sin and turn towards Christ in faith. If we've been praying for someone or something for months and years and we don't see what we want to see, it's very tempting to begin to lose heart. We convince ourselves that prayer isn't working, and we're tempted to give up. But what would it be like if we adopted God's perspective rather than our own limited perspectives? To look through the filter of eternity rather than immediacy. 
to see from the lens of redemptive history rather than our own short lifetimes, to trust that God is committed to refining or sanctifying us rather than simply giving us whatever we want, to adopt God's patience and compassion for the salvation of the lost rather than complaining about, what, about God's supposed delay in providing our own comforts and desires. The certain hope that every Christian has is that Jesus will return one day where he will right every wrong, wipe away every tear, restore everything broken. He will bring about complete and perfect justice upon all the earth. And when he does, we will not feel that he was delayed. But in light of eternity, in light of redemptive history, in light of our own sanctification, in light of the salvation of the lost, we, along with all the saints, will magnify the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the perfect timing of God. And so, in this time of waiting, having that kind of God-centered perspective helps us not to despair, but to persist in prayer. And now let's turn to one challenging question about our faith that Jesus poses. The second part of verse 8 says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here, Jesus turns the tables on his disciples. In the time between Jesus' first and second coming, the questions in the disciples' minds are, will God be faithful to who he is and what he has promised? Will he hear our prayers? Will he be just towards us? Will he love us? Will he speedily give us justice? And for all those questions, Jesus gives a resounding yes. In fact, those are not the real questions at all. God will absolutely hear us, be just towards us, love us, and speedily give us justice. The real question is not regarding whether God will be faithful. But the real question is whether we will be found faithful when Jesus returns. Jesus will one day come to judge the living and the dead and to make all things right. But will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith expressed through persistent prayer? Or will he find that nobody's praying, nobody's waiting? They've all lost heart. They all stopped caring trusting that he's faithful. You know, that's the real question. That's the challenging question that he wants to leave his disciples with. He's told them what they ought to do to not despair, but to persist in prayer. He's given them motivations for persisting in prayer, that God is just and loving towards them, that God will not delay in doing right. And now he leaves them with this open-ended question. So when I come back, is that how I'm going to find you living? Notice that Jesus asked whether he will find faith when he comes back. On the surface, this seems like it's coming out of nowhere. He hasn't been explicitly talking about faith at all throughout this passage. But Jesus is now making explicit what has been implicit this entire time. That faith is not just conceptual or intellectual, but true faith must be expressed and evidenced outwardly in our lives. And in this case, that outward expression of faith is seen through persistent prayer. Only people who believe that God is faithful to who he is and what he has promised will persist in prayer. If you don't believe that that's who God is, you will not persist in prayer. 
In fact, believing is the very reason that you struggle and are tempted to lose heart in the first place. It's because you believe that God is faithful that you're struggling to reconcile what you know is true about God with what you're experiencing in your life. It's because you believe that God is just that you're struggling to make sense out of injustices in your life. But the very fact that you're continuing to pray shows that you still believe those truths about God. You haven't abandoned your faith, but you express your struggles honestly before the God that you still believe in. Only believers can persist in faith. Only believers can persist in prayer. At the same time, I know that there are some dark nights of the soul where it's so difficult to pray. We feel so beaten down and worn out by our sufferings that we can't seem to utter any words of prayer. Or maybe you're a newer Christian and you have no idea how to pray, let alone persist in prayer. Thankfully, God does not leave us to ourselves, but he has given us his word and his church. Regarding his word, there have been many times in my life when, where I've, or not many, by God's grace, not many, but there have been times in my life when I have felt so overwhelmed that I didn't have the will to get out of bed to face the day. I knew I needed to pray, but even the thought of prayer felt like too much to me. I couldn't do it. So I would listen to the Psalms on audio, and I made those my prayers. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and I would just keep going through the Psalms. When I didn't have the strength or the words to pray myself, I borrowed words from God's word, from the prayers in the Psalms, and I made those my prayers. Regarding his church, our corporate gatherings are also meant to teach and encourage us in prayers saturated with God's word. We have corporate prayers of praise, confession, thanks, and petition. To remember those different kinds of prayers, think of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. A for adoration or praise, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, S for supplication or petition or asking God to work in certain ways. So if you're struggling to adore or praise God, learn to do so through our corporate prayer of praise week after week. If you're struggling to confess your sin to God, learn to do so through our corporate prayer of confession week after week. And the same goes for thanks and supplication. And as we learn from these corporate prayers, we're not just listening to someone else's prayer. Please do not have that perspective. But we are making these prayers our own as we say amen collectively at the end. I would love to hear a booming amen because this is not just someone else's prayer, but this is our prayer, our corporate prayer. But it's not just the corporate prayers, but everything we do in our corporate worship as we read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, see the word in the ordinances, they're all meant to encourage us to persist in our faith and thus persist in our prayers. Let me just highlight the aspect of singing together as a church. Scripture calls us to address one another in songs of worship as we exalt the Lord together. There's something especially edifying. We're built up in a special way whenever we hear the whole congregation sing out loudly these amazing gospel truths that we believe in. In a way, it's as if the lyrics of the songs become our collective prayers to our God. And in a way, it's as if hearing one another singing these songs is calling us to recognize these wonderful truths and it's pressing those truths in deeper into our hearts. 
You know, just last week, as we were singing the chorus of Christ, our hope in life and death, I don't know if you were here, I hope you were, but as we were singing that, those, that, the chorus, I just started tearing up as I heard our congregation crying out in one voice, Oh, sing, hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing, hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. In that moment, God used the loud voices of our whole congregation to teach and to encourage me to persist in my faith. And I know that we all need that. And the ministry of the church is not only expressed in these formal corporate gatherings, but also in all the informal times as well. There have been many times, whether over a meal, whether before or after Sunday celebration, or over a message or a call, when different members have asked me how I was doing. And when I told them I honestly wasn't doing well, they simply prayed for me right there and then. Now, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Especially as a pastor, I, I care for and I pray for every single member of our church. But to know that it's not just one way, but different members in our church actually care how I'm doing and are praying for me, especially when I'm struggling, I can't tell you how encouraging that is to me and how they help me persist in my faith. And not only in the church, but such ministry to one another is also meant to be experienced in the family. Husbands, pray for and with your wife. And wives, pray for and with your husbands. If you have kids, I encourage you to practice family worship each day where you sing the word, read the word, pray the word. Use that time to specifically pray with your kids in light of what you just read in God's word. Teach your kids that we don't just merely go to church as if it's just some place that we habitually go to, but we come to worship the Lord with God's people. We don't just go. We come to worship. We come to be with our spiritual family. Model for them what it looks like to sing praises to our God. Don't just let them see you standing there watching the band with your mouth not open at all. Let them listen to your prayers. Don't let them just see you standing there saying nothing when it's time to repent. Model for them what it means to come before our God to worship with God's people. If you're a husband or father, wife or mother, sibling or child, you're not just to live life together. But being a Christian family means that we help one another to persist in the faith. And one of the primary ways that we do that is to pray for one another and make prayer prominent in your family. If anyone were to ask your spouse or your kids, does your family pray? I hope they would say, yes, we pray. We pray at meals. We pray in the morning. We pray when they drop me off from school. We pray when we're walking. We pray when we go to sleep. Whenever they receive a prayer request, they pray right there and then. They pray by themselves. They pray with us. They pray with members in the church. We are a praying family because we believe that God is faithful to hear our prayers. We believe that he cares for us. We believe that he comes to our aid. Who else would we turn to? Why would we not pray? I can't imagine being a family that does not pray. I pray that would be the testimony of anybody in our families. 
If any of this seems too difficult or daunting, please come talk to me or any other of the families. And after Sunday celebration, at any time, I'm sure we'd love to talk more about this with you. Check out some books in the library. They're, they're great. Let's make this the norm in the families in our church because we believe that this is who our God is. All this is to say that we are never called to persist in prayer on our own. We are not like the widow. But God graciously gives us his word, his church, and for some of us, our family as well, to help us persist in our faith. And so when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus returns, may he find true and persistent faith among his praying people. As we close, let's take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them upon Christ. Let's remember that Jesus knows what it's like to experience injustice in this world. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends in his greatest hour of need. He was condemned to death in a corrupt court of religious leaders that ought to have known better. He was wrongly crucified as a criminal, even after the Roman governor declared him innocent. But worst of all, for the first time in his life, the sinless Jesus was utterly alone on the cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he stood in the place of sinners and bore the wrath that we deserve. If there was anyone who was tempted to despair, it was surely Jesus. If there was anyone who was tempted to lose heart, it was him. But what do we find Jesus doing amidst such insufferable injustice? In the Garden of Gethsemane, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And on the cross, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Even in the garden and on the cross, Jesus did not despair, but he persisted in prayer. And so, we do not look to ourselves or our circumstances, but we fix our eyes on Christ and find that only in him can we always pray and not lose heart. So once again, the one thing for today is this. As you wait, do not despair, but in faith, persist in prayer. As you wait, do not despair, but in faith, persist in prayer. As we remain seated, let's respond now to God's word. Uh, keep your Bibles open to the passage. We'll have the, the overview here on the screen as well to help you um, understand the passage or remind you of it. Let's spend a few moments of quiet reflection and prayer now in response to God's word. Let's pray.